morning, folks. My name is Graham. I'm an alcoholic. I'm from just outside Toronto, Canada, but as you can tell by the accent, I don't speak either official language of the country I come from. So I hope you understand Scottish. Uh, I have to tell you, this is a single honor to be asked to do this. This is probably the most, certainly nerve-wracking, and the, I, I suspect least deserved honor that I've been given to, to address my peers as a closing speaker at IDAA. You know, I learn most of what I try to do on a daily basis from you, so really who am I to come back and, and tell you what you've told me? I, I also appreciate that, that there's been previous IDA meetings where I've, I've been asked to, to share and, and take part, and so some of you may have, have heard me before, and, and the, if you feel in the middle of this you want to get up and leave, the healthy part of me will really appreciate that, but the alcoholic part of me will never forget your face, and I will... <laughs> I will have a resentment that I will take back to Guelph and have to work with, with Punchy, who is my sponsor. But more, you, you're here later. He's really quite a character, Punchy, and I, I'm always delighted to talk about him. You know, I've heard some wonderful things this weekend, and there's a couple of comments I'd like to make, um, as much on behalf of Linda and I as, as, as anything else. And one is, I, I need to say something about your Oklahoma memorial. I have not been that touched by anything so deeply for such a long time. And I want to acknowledge and recognize and support your community. I, I think you did something in the face of desperate tragedy that was very special and very unique, very dignified, and very honorable. And I, for one, am extremely impressed and very respectful of Oklahoma City. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that on behalf of my wife and my family. Thank you for that. You know, I, I don't have a terribly remarkable drunkologue. It says in the big book we tell our stories in a general way what we were like, what happened, and what we are like now. Well, I don't know what you were like, so I'm going to talk a little bit about me, and then I'll tell you a little bit of what happened to me, and, and maybe we should invite my wife up to tell you what it's like now. You might get a very different flavor from what I would say to you. It remains to be seen, or maybe one of my teenagers who are in the room as well. I, I was a blackout drinker, so my drunkalogue is vague at best. Um, there are times that, a bit like Father Joe Martin, he said when he drank, he broke out in spots. And, and I was a bit like that, you know, Winnipeg or Buffalo or, or Toronto. And it, it, was a, it is still a unique experience, despite the fact I've been sober for over 15 years, to waken up in the morning, not be hungover and know where the car is. And I continue to get tremendous joy out of that simple fact. And I know last night where I was and what I did, and I know today where the car's going to be. Um, because I never knew those things when I was drinking. I grew up in an alcoholic home. My dad, who was a doctor, was alcoholic and died of this disease, and effectively in Skid Row in Scotland, Glasgow, Scotland, in the early 70s. My home was a dangerous and violent and abusive place. The best-dressed kid in my house was the first up in the morning. And if you wanted a reasonable meal in my home, a real miserable breakfast, you went to the neighbor's house. And that was just the way it was. But you see, because it was an alcoholic home, we closed the doors and everything was fine, especially because it was a doctor's alcoholic home. When the door was closed, we pulled our wagons around and didn't share. And so from a very early age, I was taught to lie. I was taught to not deal with feelings. The downside or the upside, depending how you look at it, of growing up in that home was I developed two things. I developed an ability to be intensely competitive, and it developed an incredible aggression that allowed me to play a contact sport to a, a senior level, a game called rugby that some of you may know. 
and I could play to a national level because what I was doing in that sport was acting out and working out my rage that I had from the home that I came from. And I didn't know that then. I just knew I was incredibly violent throughout that very violent game and was well known for violence and fighting in that game where you could get away with it. This is because of coming from that home. The competitive aspect allowed me to work very hard at school because I thought if I got better grades, I, I, would, uh, I would somehow fix my father. And the result, I was accepted into medical school at the tender age of 16. And I began medical school in the UK just after my 17th birthday and graduated with this MD, this malignant denial that so many of us have um, in my very early 20s, to go out and treat human beings when I had no life experience other than the rage left over from this very, very crazy home that I grew up in. My first drink of alcohol was age 16, and I was at a party with a girlfriend whose name was Brenda. She had a cap and a right front tooth. The wallpaper was blue with little pink wall flowers on it. The rug was blue. The tray had a little thistle emblem on it. There were five glasses that were crystal, and it was Johnny Walker Red Label. I drank that. I was the only kid to be drinking at this party, and I got drunk. Now, I don't remember my first bout, first bout of diarrhea, but I sure as hell remember that first drink because it filled the hole in my soul. All of a sudden, I felt like you looked. All of a sudden, with this alcohol, despite the fact I got drunk, it filled a space for me. It made me feel normal. And thereafter, I realized that I always use my chemicals not necessarily to get high, but to be normal, to sleep, to dance, to make love, to communicate. I had to have some form of chemicals to allow me to do that. And that's the nature of addictive disease, as we all know. My drug of choice is more. It continues to be that way today. When it comes to eating or anything else, I can always want a little bit more. It's amazing how my, my reptilian brain works, but it's just the way I am and it's the way I have to accept myself. Thank goodness I have healthy people in my life that can keep me in balance. I think my dad, although his alcoholism at the time was a dreadful experience, embarrassing, shaming, frightening, and violent, was part of the people that touched me in my spiritual journey. When I was in first year medical school, I came home one night and I almost killed him. Had it not been for my mother and my brother, who was as strong and as powerful as me, pulling me off that man, he would have been dead. And my little Scottish grandmother took me aside and with the wisdom of age and the wisdom of life experience, this little four foot nine by four foot nine Scottish lady hugged me and said, sometime, Graham, sometime, this will all make sense. Wonderful wisdom from an old lady who had lived for close to a hundred years and knew what life was all about. And indeed now, many years later, it makes sense. From that tragedy, I am able now to communicate to some extent with children of alcoholics because I know what it's like to be in that home for the message is don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, don't love, don't show anything. And by all means, don't tell anyone else what's happening in this house. I completed medical school with my degree, and I met a young lady, and we got married, and I began to get into difficulties with alcohol in my profession. I was called up in front of the superintendent one day. I was drunk, and for some reason to this day, I can't really figure out why, because a member of the blackouts, I was called a superintendent that for us in the UK was the head of the hospital. I, I, you might call it the chief of staff or the CEO here. But for some reason, I had a potted plant stuck down my trousers at the time. 
And so I was being interviewed by this senior person in the hospital, looking at him through all this foliage and not really understanding what was going on. I have no idea how it got there. And it seemed to make sense at the time, but now it really doesn't. My career was starting to skid quickly, and I went to my boss and said, Boss, I'm thinking of coming to Canada. And he said, Good idea, Graham. That man was a professor of medicine in Glasgow, Scotland, and I was his uh, senior resident. We call it senior registrar over there is a term that you use in the UK. I've subsequently met that man at medical functions back in Scotland. And again, a wise man. He came up to me as I was sipping my glass of orange juice at a shire reception before a college meeting in Glasgow. And he said, nice to see you, Graham, and hope things are going well. And then he said quietly, I notice you don't drink. And yet that man had seen me many years ago, and like so many of us in the profession in the 60s and the early 70s, we didn't know what to do with sick doctors. So my wife and I eventually came to Canada to drink Canada dry, and, and uh, we landed in a, in a small town where I was a family doctor. And by putting up my shingle, I got the Ontario Health Insurance Plan, also called OHIP. It also stands for Oh How It Pays. And I began to generate a significant income, and I went from a weekend drunk to a daily drunk, again reflecting the fact I had more money. I thought I'd become a wine connoisseur, and I joined the Epimium Society, where you send you cases of wine and little hints about laying it down for weeks, months, or years, to, and then enjoying the bouquet, the smell, the taste. Well, I have to tell you that I believe that a wine connoisseur is simply a wino with a checkbook, and I became, I, I became a wino with a checkbook. We were never able to leave. I drank a lot of pink, frothy, immature wine, I think reflecting my immaturity as well. My uh, my first wife, after a number of years, we, we had a couple of kids, and, and uh, I came home one day, and I, w- I won't tell you what was on the note, but it was effectively, I can't take any more, I'm out of here. And she took off. She ran off with the local town sheriff. You remember that song, Who Shot the Sheriff? Well, you know, I could have written the damn thing. But she took off, leaving me with two children, ages five and four, and a resentment that would fill this room and a wonderful excuse for escalating my drinking. I used to go around the A&P, you know, the, the, the store where you get your groceries, with the kids in the basket, pushing the basket, with my face tripping me, and all the ladies in this small town would come up and say, there's a special on eggs today, doctor. Can we get you some meat, doctor? People would come to my house with meals prepared in plates, and I just relished this. I loved this. I wallowed in that self-pity for a long time. I then began to date my now wife, who's the one that's in Al-Anon, and she knocked that out of me very quickly. In fact, on the first date, she said to me, you're an alcoholic. And I said, I'm a doctor. You're a nurse. Mind your own business. I make the diagnosis. But she, uh, she, she still married me, and, you know, and probably unfortunately for her, but uh, it, I'm glad that she did. That relationship, of course, with my first wife was never to work, and I raised these two children as a single parent for a little while uh, with the help of a very good housekeeper, and then Linda and I met and we got married. The drinking continued to escalate, and so we moved from the community we were in to another community, because that's what alcoholics do. We moved up to northern Ontario. In the interval, I had gone back and done some more training in Toronto, and and, uh, had become uh, training as an internist cardiologist. I'd become chief resident in medicine in one of the major teaching hospitals in Toronto, and coincident with that, a very a, a prestigious position, I also discovered cocaine. Cocaine in the 70s was thought to be a safe drug, and as much as it didn't give you a hangover and didn't damage your organs, we thought. And so we would use cocaine routinely in the mornings before we went and did rounds. We would steal cocaine from the ENT trays in the emergency, 
and one of the fellows in, in, the, in the residency was able to get an un, in what seemed like an unending supply. And so I began an experience and love affair with cocaine while I was a, a senior and finally chief resident in a teaching hospital in Toronto. Finally, out in practice up in northern Ontario, things began to be more and more difficult. You see, my father was a highly visible falling down drunk, and I didn't want to be that way. And so my drinking was secret. My drinking was shameful. I would appear on the surface to drink socially, but I would have a number of drinks before I went anywhere, and certainly a lot the time I came home. I would buy bottles of alcohol that were square, because when they're square and you put the brakes on, they don't come out from below the front seat of your car in a hurry, whereas the, the round ones do. I didn't see anything wrong with that. I could really relate to Argus last night when he said that he was picked up for drunk driving and he thought he should never have taken the street that he was on instead of he shouldn't have had the drink. And that was the way my mind worked and still works to this day. 1975, I was in my office one day and I knew I wasn't typically with alcohol. The blackouts really scared me, but I could do nothing about them. I used to sit and pinch my right thigh when I began drinking and I'd say, don't black out, don't black out, don't black out. And I'd wake up the next morning, wherever I woke up, and I wouldn't remember what had happened. I would have a huge bruise in my right thigh from pinching myself, so I didn't black out. Terry walked into my office one day, and Terry was jaundiced, belly full of fluid, covered in red blotches. And smart doctor that I was, I investigated him, and I brought him back in, and I said, you've got cirrhosis. You're going to have to stop drinking. Thinking to myself, poor sod. How is he ever going to do this? I didn't know anything about AA. Those days I thought alcoholism was a librium deficiency. And that's the way I'd been trained. And that's the way I treated alcoholism. And he left with his prescription of librium. And But four months later he came back to my office. And a bit like Abby Thatcher must have looked to Bill Wilson when he turned up at his door in 1934, Terry walked in and he had a suit on, a tie, clean shaven, belly was flat, jaundice was gone. And I said, Terry, you look absolutely terrific. What's going on? He said, well, Doc, he said, I've got my wife back and I've got my job back. They say that getting sober is like playing a country and western record backwards. You know, you get your job back, the dog back, family back. <laughs> All these whiny things you lose. And he said, I'm staying sober in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. I've never heard of it. And I said to him in a very arrogant way, I said, well, you know, that's interesting. From a professional point of view, you understand, just from a professional point of view, I think I might go to some of these AA meetings. And Terry said, made the classical AA member's remark. He said, okay, Doc, I'll pick you up. <laughs> and I made the standard alcoholic response. No, thanks, I'll get there myself. But I did start going to AA meetings. Now, I wasn't sober. I was drinking before I went and drinking after I came back. But the seed was sown. Your laughter, I didn't believe. Your honesty was threatening. People would get up for three months or chips or one-year birthdays, and I'd think that's absolute nonsense. They've got to be drinking in the side. The attitude was wrong. I sat in the back row and I made diagnosis. People would get up to speak, and I'd say, well, that person's depressed. Or it must be the menopause. Or it's a bipolar disorder. You know, I was really sick with a very poor attitude, but the seed was sown. You know, somebody said it at one of the meetings in the other recently in the last few days, you never know when we're the only big book that people might see, and that's frightening. And that was brought home to me in my home group recently when a man was speaking at a birthday and he said he'd been sober since 1998. He'd been at a meeting in 1990 and he'd heard a doctor talk and he listened to the doctor's story and he hadn't done any of the things the doctor had done so he kept drinking for eight more years. And I was the doctor that told the story. And that really scared me because what I'm giving away here is my sobriety so I can keep it. 
I'm not giving away here a drunkologue to make people be impressed or allow people to continue drinking or drugging. And that really was a very frightening comment to hear that man say that. So Terry allowed me to go to some AE meetings. He didn't pick me up. I went myself. I didn't stay, of course, because I wasn't ready for this program. But the point is, I knew you were there. We moved to Northern Ontario. I got myself a number of jobs that allowed me to travel out of town. And by traveling out of town, I could do whatever I wanted with no accountability to wife or family. And I would fashion my life deliberately to allow me to get positions on committees and other things to allow me to travel around the province, or the state as you would call it, stay at the expense of the organization for whom I'm working in hotels, and drink and drug and do the things I wanted to do that I felt I couldn't do at home. All in secret, all with shame, all with intense fear of being caught. Doug Talbot in Vancouver conceptualized what happened for me in a few words. No matter what I achieved in terms of becoming chief of medicine or chairman of a department or whatever my role was or my title was, no matter what I achieved, I had the little voice that Doug so clearly characterized in Vancouver that said, if you only knew me, if you only knew the kind of person I was and the things that I was doing, you would leave me. If you only knew me. And so no matter what what I was achieving in life successfully, I constantly felt I didn't deserve it. I wasn't good enough, and if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. And there's still a part of me to this day that's a people pleaser. It's getting better. I have, I carry around, some of you know this, my guilt-free no, so that I have, I have difficulty saying no, and so I hold my card up, and when they ask me to join a committee, I use my guilt-free no, and that works very well. By this time, I was entering the intensive care unit phase of my alcoholism. That meant that I would waken up in intensive care units, and I would black out and not realize how I got there. And I remember one time waking up in bed four of the intensive care unit in Timmins. I, I was the director of the intensive care unit, and here I am in bed four. No idea how I got there. Tubes in places I didn't know I had places. I didn't like to say to the nurses, hey, how did I get here? Because that would be kind of a dead giveaway that I was having problems here. And so I thought, well, what can I do here? So being an inventive alcoholic drug addict, I began to tap the little daisy on my chest. And as I tapped the daisy on my chest, so the monitor went beep, 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 beep. And the nurse was right at my bedside. Are you having pain? Yes, bang, morphine. And that was great, you see. And that took the edge off my nerves. And eventually I was able to ascertain and work out what had happened. And then when they wouldn't let me smoke, I would sign out against medical advice, go home, have a shower, come back, put my white coat on and do rounds in the same unit. And nobody said a word. I was so senior and maybe so unpleasant to be around, I don't know, that no one said anything. In the secrets lies the sickness. And they were helping me keep the secrets. It progressed. I won't go into all the details. I want to tell you one detail of, of a, near the end as I was getting more and more caught. One night I was not in call and I was home. It was a Saturday night. What does any respecting cardiologist in the community do when he's not in call on a Saturday night? Well, he drinks. And, of course, I was well into the bag by 11.30 and just thinking of having some more family were off to bed when the phone rang. And this was my partner, Cam, who was in the hospital trying to put a pacemaker on an old man. And you know that pacemakers are pretty straightforward procedures, but every now and again it's sometimes difficult to get that wire right where you want it. And he couldn't capture this man's heart. And would I come in and give him a hand? Well, you see, the social drinker would have said, actually, I've had a couple of drinks, Cam. I don't think I'll come in. Alcoholic, I'll be right there. You need me, I'll be there. Upstairs to the bathroom, the visine in the eyes, the breath freshener, down to emerge, into emerge, put the mask on. 
and then up to the operating suite where they, they had the radiology stuff set up for the pacemaker. Now, we did it under radiology control. In other words, we watched the tip of the pacemaker going into the, into the ventricle and with, on the, the, the X-ray monitor. And it was timed, so we knew how much radio, radiation we'd expose our patient to. The sober cardiologist couldn't insert pacemaker. The drunk cardiologist took two and a half minutes. Now, have I just stopped there? But I'm an alcoholic. So I told them what they were doing wrong and how they could fix it. I told them what the government was doing wrong about the hospitals and how they could fix that. And I went home. Next day I came in expecting to get all kinds of praise and plaudits. And you've all been there, I'm sure. You walk into the room and everyone stops talking. And by this time, my alcoholism in my profession, impacting on my ability to care for the people that assumed when they came to see me that they were safe and that I was sober, that unwritten patient-doctor contract was repeatedly broken. And I say that to my eternal shame. I never intended to become a drunk doctor. I wanted to be the best physician I could be, but I became a drunken physician instead. And so that played a big part in beginning to intervene in my own mind that I had to do something about this. But this time, Linda and I had five children. I think she must have been to some Al-Anon meetings because I said, honey, you need to get fixed because we don't want any more kids. And she said, oh, no, you get fixed. So I went in for a vasectomy on the 3rd of January, 1986, and had my moment of clarity. I don't know because of the site of the operation, I have no idea, but on the operating table, with a clarity I can't describe, I saw my alcoholism, the way my mother saw it, the way my wives must have seen it, the way my staff must have seen it, the way my kids must have seen it. And I realized I couldn't go on. I left the hospital that day, went home, went to the basement and began to drink, because that's what I did all the time. And as I was drinking that first drink, the voice said, I'm staying sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, doctor. A day at a time. Terry's voice in my ear as clearly as he was sitting beside me. And I turned to Linda and I said, we must call AA. I was having trouble reading by that time in terms of my, my intellect. I was having trouble writing. I had very little recall of events. Linda looked up the AA number, dialed the phone and handed it to me. Three rings and the voice said, Alcoholics Anonymous, can I help you? No appointments. No come back in a month for an assessment. Alcoholics Anonymous, how can I help you? Ten o'clock at night. And I said, I don't really know. I said, I want to quit drinking. I'm in real trouble. He said, where do you live? And I told him the address. He said, I'll be right over. Thirty seconds later. And honest to God, I thought the guy had been in my driveway with a cell phone. <laughs> this was Bill H. and Timmons. And Bill H. had the AE phone. And Bill H. lived three doors down from me. What does it say in the big book? In chapter five, God could and would if he were sought. That night, I began to seek God in the right places. And Bill walked into my kitchen and listened to, I, to, to Linda's anger and listened to my sadness and rage and tears into a towel that I was holding. And you know, for the first time, he didn't do that to me. He told me about his drinking. He told me about his 35 years of sobriety. God, it was a lifetime. I wasn't much older than 35 years at that point. And he took me to his basement for three days and gave me Bill's basement treatment. That was no fun. He said, how old are you? I said, I'm 41. He got a 41-year-old man in from AA who told his story, drank a cup of coffee. He left. He said, how long have you been bald? I said, about three years. He got a bald man from AA come in, told his story. He said, what do you do? I'm a doctor. He got a doctor from AA come in, told his story, drank a coffee. He could match my every Scotsman. He could match my every need that weekend with folks from AA. This is absolutely true. 
This is 12-step in action. I wouldn't have known what it was at that time. But you know, something was happening to me. I was flown down to treatment on the Wednesday. The doctor that had been part of that 12-steps call, if you like, had arranged to get me into treatment. I was flown down to treatment. My last drunk was on the plane on the way down. I left a 40 or 26er in the uh, taxi cab at the door of the treatment center, and I haven't had a drink since. That was the 8th of January, 1986. I walked into that treatment center, and I sat in the lobby, and I was unshaven, and I was hungover, and I was smelly, and I wasn't really feeling good about myself. And a young lady came up and put her arm on my shoulder, and she said, I'm your buddy here. I've been here for a week, and we're here to welcome you. And I said, this is awful. And she said, oh, I can understand that. And then I said, I know better. I should know better. And she said, why? I said, because I'm a doctor. And she said, so am I. So am I. And that was Joan. And Joan and I became friends. You see, I thought I was the only one in the world, but God put that woman in my life that day. Now, I have to tell you, I saw her obituary in the Canadian Medical Journal six months ago. Joan died having lost her license, having lost her three children, having lost everything. She literally ended up in the street and died of alcoholism. I don't know why I'm sober today and Joan isn't. But I've since had the chance in AA to go back to that woman some years later and thank her for that moment in time when she gave me the strength to stay there because I really wanted to run. And she said, it's okay to be a sick doctor. What a wonderful gift. Finished treatment after a number of weeks. Got off the plane back in Timmins. And Linda and the kids were there, which was wonderful. Linda had been down for family week and had done the family programs. And that was great. The kids were there. But even more importantly, Al and Joe from AA were there. And they sat with me in Al's kitchen and said, Do you think he's ready for his first meeting? What do you think? You see, I'd been to AA and treatment. Sober. And the first AA meeting after I was detox, I went in and John was speaking. You don't know who John was. I don't know who John was. But John said, I'm reading this book. And he held up the 24-hour book, the little black book, 16th time, which meant he'd been 16 years sober. And he said, I do it by praying. Bang! My mind closed. But I went up to him afterwards and said, you need to tell me about this prayer thing. I'm from Scotland. And even the dogs don't bark on Sunday over there. I mean, that's a real Calvinistic punishing God. He said, you have to pray to something. So I said, who do you pray to? He said, pray to anything you want. So I went to my room in that treatment center and I got down on my knees beside the bed and there was a huge fir tree outside the window. And I prayed to the tree. And I said, I'm really scared. And I don't know if I can do this. But I really need help. And I climbed into my bed that night and I slept properly for the first time in years. I still go back to that center on my dry day. And I go up to that tree and I give it a nudge, a wink and a kick. It's no longer my higher power. But I've got to tell you, that night something happened to me. I know now in the jargon that we use and in the psychology that we use, what I was doing was surrendering. I was giving up completely. I was accepting the first step. I didn't know that then. But something happened in my life at that night when I said to God, I can't do this. Can you do this for me? And I can tell you, that not long after that, I realized that the obsession to drink and drug had gone. I don't know where it's gone, but it's gone. Has it come back? No. Have I had thoughts? Yes. But that cold wind that just blows right through here, that's only fixed by four fingers of brown Scottish liquid, hasn't come back in 15 years. And for that, I'm very grateful. 
Al and Joe took me to my first 30 meetings. They didn't trust me. They picked me up. They'd take me to meetings. They'd go on to cup coffee and they'd take me home. This is up in northern Ontario. Hard rock mining town. 32 pubs downtown. Everyone's a two-fisted drinker. And I get sober up there. And wonderful AA. Main Street AA. I've seen everything in AA in Timmins. I've seen fights in AA. I've seen people picking things out of the air that weren't there. It's just wonderful. Main Street regular folks AA. I'm really impressed that the more tattoos and the fewer degrees people have often, the more I can learn from them. Somebody said to me not long ago, you're the doctor with all the degrees in AA. And I said, well, I guess I am. And he said, well, thermometers of degrees, you know, where you stick them. You know, that kind of brought me down to earth. <laughs> and I met Third Step Jack. Third Step Jack became my first sponsor. Third Step Jack at a corner store, 7-Eleven kind of equivalent. We don't call it that in Canada. And Jack said, we're not supposed to make money in AA, but I would suggest to you that you buy your smokes and your newspaper in the morning uh, from my store. And I said, why, Jack? He said, just do it. So I did it. I went in the first day, and, and uh, I bought my smokes and my, my newspaper, and in the back of his store were three men sitting around a coffee pot, guys from AA. So I had a coffee. We talked to AA for an hour. I went to the office. Did my day's work, come back to get my second pack of smokes and jacks, and there was three different guys at the coffee pot. So I sat down with them, we talked AA, and so I got about six hours of AA a day for the first year and a half. Thank God! Because I had no idea what AA was about. I could intellectualize by reading the book. My first weekend of, of getting this book in 1975 from a grateful alcoholic, I did the first nine steps. Had them all done and thought, that's it, I'm fine, I'm finished. I passed the test and I can move on. But you know it's not like that. So Jack said to me, you know, it's time to do your fourth and fifth step. He said, you need to do a fourth step. And please do it from the book, Graham. Don't do it from the, the, the pages and the, the, the steps on the wall. Don't do it from treatment centers, big book uh, study pages. Please do it from the big book because that's what worked for him. So I did it from the big book. He said, you need to talk about resentments. It comes from resentare, the Latin verb to feel again. I feel things again. You get worse and I get better. And you live rent-free in my head. I had resentments against people going back into my early life that I didn't even know were there. And as I wrote them down one by one, as Jack told me, he said, you're a bit of a dummy, Graham. You can't remember two resentments at once. And so write them all down. He was right. And identified fears and identified sex behavior that would offend other people as well over the years of drinking and drugging. And that was all put to paper. There's an old AA joke that some of you will know that anything about you want to know about sex in the big book, for reasons of printing, happened to be printed in page 69. And there's a story of the newcomer in AA who goes to his sponsor and says he's having some trouble in the sex area, and his sponsor, the big book sponsor, and he says, all you need to know, friend, is just go down to page 69, it'll tell you all the answers there. And so the newcomer, who's still a bit cloudy and cognitively damaged, like we heard at lunchtime yesterday, Gets home on the subway and gets into his house and he says, geez, what page was that again? Oh yeah, page 96. And so he goes to page 96 and he reads this. He said, do, Mark, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. <laughs> it says, find another alcoholic and try again. And so I wrote all these things down and I took them to a priest in Timmins that played in the Flying Fathers, a National Hockey League ex-priest hockey team. They're all ex-NHL players and they're great. And Father Les was a wonderful man and I'd known him through the, the hospital where I worked, etc. And he did the first fifth step and I read it all out. And he kept saying, it's the disease, it's the disease, it's the disease, which was great. And then he walked around the table when I was through about 9.30, 10 o'clock at night and he took my face in his hands and he said, the slate is wiped clean. And I floated from the priest's house. 
Now, I have to tell you, I made a terrible mistake. And I want to share it with you. Four and a half years later, I was going to AA very regularly. had a home group, had a good sponsor, Punchy, I'll talk about in a minute. But I was bored with AA. I was bored with the morning readings. I was bored with the smoke. I was bored with the same jokes. I was just bored with AA. And I came to Grand Rapids IDAA. And I was going to play golf, I think, with Dick and, and Mark Yu from Ottawa. But I couldn't find them to find out what tea when the tea off time was. So I thought, I'll just go into the meeting. Maybe they're in there. So I walked into the meeting and Burns B was the speaker. And some of you know Burns. When he gets going, you can smell the smoke and feel the heat. He's unbelievable. And he said at four and a half years, he was bored with AA. Jesus me. He said, I don't like the smoke and I couldn't stand the readings. They were always the same. I thought, Jesus me. And he said, I discovered I was doing a four-step program, one, two, three, and twelve. And I thought, Jesus me. You see, it says at the end of the fifth step, we rest for an hour. I rested for four and a half bloody years. No wonder I was miserable. I hadn't done the other steps. And so I rushed back to Guelph and I said to Punchy, my sponsor, I need to work through the steps again. Punchy's a wonderful man. He's a grade three dropout, can't read or write. He was a Golden Gloves champ in New York State back in the late 50s. He was one of Floyd Patterson's sparring partners. And if, a, if Alfie didn't damage his brain drinking, he sure probably damaged it in boxing. But he's got the wisdom of Job living sober. Let me give you an example of his wisdom. I've gone to the British doctors and dentists meeting now for several years. And it's a wonderful meeting. And I strongly recommend it to all of you who can get there. Please get there. Now, we've had an enjoyable breakfast here. But I've got to tell you, the breakfasts at the UK meeting are terrific. This pales in comparison. All North American breakfasts do. They get... Eggs over easy, they get beans, they get fried bread and drippings, they get blood pudding. I mean, it's wonderful. It's grease upon grease upon grease. <laughs> and I would go back for seconds and I would go back for thirds because I love this kind of breakfast. And this is about four years ago. And on the last, second last day of the British meeting, I noticed that my urine had gone dark and my stools were pale. Well, smart and tennis that I am, I realized that I was jaundiced. Now, I'd had some vague dyspepsia, you know, nothing really I'd call colic or pain, and so, so often I get my exercise by jumping to conclusions. I leapt, I leapt to the conclusion that I was, uh, I had obstructive jaundice and I canceled the pancreas. This is absolutely true. I told nobody in the UK. I came back to Canada. I told nobody in Canada. I started going to meetings every day to be in a fit spiritual condition when I would pass through. Some three to four months later. This is absolutely true. After a couple of weeks, I realized there was nothing in the big book about jaundice. I mean, it's really sort of unfair to expect Bill to wax lyrical and jaundice in the big book, and he didn't. So I went to Punchy, and I said, Punchy, I've got this thing called jaundice. What do you think I should do? And Punchy said, I think you should see a doctor who's not as sick as you are. <laughs> that, that's the kind of man Punchy is. He has the wisdom of Job. And he teaches me what I need to hear. We have, we have breakfast pretty regularly on Saturday mornings and we see each other at meetings. I, we don't have the same home group, but we see each other a lot. We've done big books, big book studies together and he's just a wonderful man in my life. And I love him dearly. Punchy and I walked through the rest of the steps and I got to step nine to make the amends and I made all the amends to the people that were important to me, especially the people that might give me a little bit of this back. These amends for me were easy. I put off making a man to the doctor that gave me my first job in Canada, an old, crusty Scotsman from Edinburgh. All the Edinburgh people are cold and distant, just the way they are. Glaswegians are very friendly and outgoing. Humble, you know. Anyway, he was an old Edinburgh physician. 
And he'd retired by this time, and I went back to him. I made an appointment, I called him, I said, could I meet with him? We went up to his house, and I sat in his dock with him beside the lake. And I said, back in the early 70s, you'd given me a partnership, equal partnership. You brought me on board in your business, and I damn near wrecked it for you. And I said, I've got to tell you, I have to apologize. You were right, and I was sick. And I'm very sorry for the fracturing the trust and the love that you and your family showed me. And he'd absolutely no idea where I was coming from. But that didn't matter. This was me doing it for me. As I walked away, he called me. And this old, cold Scotsman, who's never shown affection, came up and gave me a hug. A year later, that man was in hospital in Toronto, dying of gastric carcinoma. Because of the amend that you told me to do, I was able to go to his bedside, hold his hand, look him in the eye, tell him I loved him, and thank him again for everything he'd done for me and my family. Because of the amend. Had I not made that amend, I would have gone to his funeral, twisted up inside, hating my guts again. Because I did what you told me to do, my life just continued to get better. To this day, it's continued to get better. My son, my oldest son, our oldest son, is 30. He just got his PhD from a Canadian university in which I happen to be in faculty. Imagine a drunk doctor getting a faculty position. Amazing. Anyway, he got his PhD and he asked me if I would hood him when he went up for his degree. I'm so proud of this young man. And as he walked across the stage to stand in front of the Chancellor of the University with an audience of a thousand watching in the Convocation Hall at the University, I walked beside him. He handed me his degree hood, and as the Chancellor read that he had been given his degree, I flipped it over his head. And he turned, and in front of a thousand people he said to me, Dad, thanks for everything. And he hugged me. And I broke down in front of a thousand people. And that's absolutely all right. The young man who never saw his dad without a drink in his hand. The young man who played hockey alone. His dad not watching him. The young man that had the anger and the disappointment that I must have had. Gave me the gift of allowing me to hood him at that degree ceremony and telling me what he thought of me. What a wonderful program we have here. What a gift I've been given. There are many, many different things I could tell you about my life and how it's improved over the years. The people that have touched my life. The people that have given me the gift of their sobriety. I think somebody said the other night that we walk on the shoulder of giants and it's absolutely true. One of the wonderful things I get from coming to IDAA is by remembering your faces. And so in the sad and the quiet moments and in the moments when my head starts to say, you know, you don't have to keep doing this. Or, why don't you try a little bit of that? There's new brands coming out I've never heard of. Things, spritzers and coolers and fancy names. And still my head says, you know, you never had any trouble with that, Graham. Maybe you should give that a try. And dismiss that thought like as if recoiling from a flame. But I still have addictive thinking. And I have wonderful people in my life that see it. At 13 years of sobriety, my management team in the facility I work in, who are friends and colleagues, came to me and said, we must talk with you closed the door of my office and sat down in the five chairs that I have in a little circle in my office around the coffee table and said, there's something we have to tell you. This is terribly difficult for us. We don't know if we can continue working with you. 
You're so unpredictable. One day we walk into your office and you're open and willing to listen and you have good ideas and you validate our needs and you support us. Other days we walk in here and you just tear our heads off and we just never know which day it is. And what was happening for me at 13 years of sobriety was this pent-up rage from childhood was coming up. I didn't know it. I knew I didn't feel good. I knew I felt out of balance. I knew I was talking to my sponsor more. But these men and women, some of whom are in recovery, some of whom aren't, but are professionals, respected and loved me enough to sit down with the boss, me, and say, we don't know if we can keep working. And so I said, yes, again, I need to reach out for professional help. And with Linda's support, I went off to Tennessee to on-site. And I worked through the rage of the sexual abuse from the scout leader. And the rage at the violence of my father. And the rage at the covert incest of my poor mother making me her surrogate husband when I was 13 years old. And telling me about her suicide plans. And I was able to work all that rage out in that center and come back and move to another plane of recovery. I couldn't have done that in my first five years. I'd have got drunk. But I could at 13 years. I was ready and God put people in my life to tell me, you need to do this now. What a gift. What a wonderful gift this program is. And I've got it for fun and for free. I'm so lucky. I want to close with telling you a story about Tom. And some of you have heard Tom's story before. I was Tom's sponsor. He was an Englishman. I used to kid him having a Scotsman for his sponsor. Tom was from a little town called Buxton outside Manchester where the British meeting was, I think, three or four years ago, Kevin. Wonderful British meeting in Buxton. And Tom had asked me some ten years ago to sponsor him. And although he had more sobriety than me, he wanted me to be his sponsor. And that worked for him. And I said, fine. And we became good friends. Tom and Cynthia, his wife, and, and his grandchildren, we became friends with them. He became good friends with my, my twins and Graham, our 19-year-old, and, and Linda. And we just became buddies. And I learned so much from Tom. A tremendously serene, oh, just a wonderful old man. We went to Akron, Ohio together to Founders Day. And we both bought mouth organs in the, uh, the duty-free as we came across the, uh, the border. And we sat outside the bus that we were traveling on, took our hats off, put them in the ground, and we played the mouth organ. And he was actually able to get money. He was quite good. He was getting money. I wasn't getting anything. But Tom was able to get a few bits of money from the Akronites who were unwell. He didn't realize that he was two sober drunks just having a good time. He cheated at Euchre. I have to tell you about that. His program wasn't perfect. He did cheat at Euchre a bit. So. And I would confront him about that. He said, it's nothing to do with alcoholism. Don't talk to me about that. <laughs> at the Akron meeting, it was obvious in June, at the Akron meeting at Founders Day, that Tom wasn't well. And over the summer, he lost a fair bit of weight, developed insulin-dependent diabetes, which most of you know at the age of 70 is relatively ominous and usually has a more serious underlying cause. And indeed, that turned out to be the case. He was found to have a lesion in his stomach and in September, it was decided that he was going to have to go in for some major surgery. His last two weeks or so before his surgery, he was too ill to leave home. And so, with his and wife, his wife's agreement, I offered to put on some meetings in his living room. And I brought some folks in the home group. And we had meetings every night. And the night before he went into the hospital, I brought all the men that Tom sponsored, the seven guys and myself, to Tom's living room. And we sat and we had a little meeting. And it wasn't really a meeting. It was a moment for all of us to tell Tom what he meant to us how we loved him and how we felt about him. It was a very, very powerful and special evening for us all. Tom went into hospital the next day, was opened up and had a gastric carcinoma. It was totally resected, edges clear, and it looked like he was going to do well. Unfortunately, he developed some post-operative complications. He developed liver failure, 
and died two weeks after he left. He went into the hospital. He never got home. And he was a tremendous loss to all of us because he really had very much touched our lives. He was a wonderful man. His wife asked me if I would read, if I would do the eulogy at his uh, at his funeral, and I agreed to do that. Although I found it very difficult because I really, really missed Tom, and I loved him dearly. But I did that. I was about to go to the British meeting in Buxton that year, the next month, and Tom had, you know, being from Buxton, we'd been joking about this months before. He'd given me address and phone numbers of relatives that he, he wanted me to look up when I was over in Buxton because it was his own hometown, and I'd agreed to do that. Cynthia came to me about a week before I left and said, there was something Tom and I never told you. We had a daughter called Jacqueline who died when she was two, and she's buried in Buxton. She died before we came to Canada. And I wonder, and the family would very much like, if you would take some of Tom's ashes and sprinkle them on Jacqueline's grave. And I said I would be privileged and proud to do that. One caveat. Please give me a copy of the, the cremation certificate. I don't want to be caught with a little bag of dust going through the customs. She gave me a copy of Tom's cremation certificate. Went to the British doctors and dentists meeting, arranged to meet Tom's older sister, a woman in her 80s. And I asked Vince, one of the fellows at the British meeting, to come with me because I knew this was going to be a very powerful and emotional experience for me. We went to the graveside in a grey Manchester wet day, just as you can all, those of you who have been in the UK know what Manchester is like, always seems to rain with a grey sky. And we stood at the graveside of this child and I read the paragraph that I had read at Tom's, just closing Tom's eulogy. And I thought that was a nice closure of a circle. I get down on my hunkers and I sprinkled the dust, the, the, the ashes on Jacqueline's grave. And exactly at that moment, exactly at that moment, a beam of sunlight came out of the sky, touched my shoulder with an intense warmth, and hit the grave on a grey, wet day. A profound experience for me. I went from believing in God to knowing. I went from believing the fact that if I'm an AA to knowing that if I'm an AA, everything is going to be all right. I recognized that Tom said to me, with one hand in God, on one hand in AA, you don't have any hands left to pick up a drink. What a wonderful, life-changing moment for me. And it only happened because of the continual spiritual growth and journey that you've encouraged me to take a day at a time with morning prayer, daily reading, evening prayer, and trying to be of service. It's not that complicated, but sometimes it's difficult. I'm going to close by again thanking Hal and the committee for a wonderful meeting. For thanking Hal for inviting me to, to take part this way. This has been much more meaningful for me than it has been, I'm sure, for any of you. And I want to close by reading that little paragraph that I read at Tom's grave, at Jacqueline's gravesite and at Tom's eulogy. This is the way Tom lived his life. This is the way I would like to continue to try on a daily basis, one day at a time, to live my life. This is so familiar to all of you. And it's a fitting way, I think, to close what for me and my family has been a really special, wonderful meeting. And it says, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. 
God bless you and thank you all very much indeed.